Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. I want us to go right to the hope. And we find that in Revelation chapter 21. We're coming sort of the home stretch of this final vision of John's apocalypse. And we've seen it since we began this series in January, this look into the future. And so I want to dive deeper today. Um, There's some complicated language here, uh, some pictures that sometimes are difficult to interpret and and unpack. So I'll ask you to to hang with me and I'll tell you, just have the faith that it's worth hanging in there uh, to see this stuff unpacked at the end. In in a nutshell, what we're going to find is is a correlation between many of the elements of our current lives, what Scripture often refers to as the shadow, the things, even the things that we love, the things that are meaningful to us, they are but a shadow of the things to come. And we see that theme repeatedly in Scripture. Uh, And so, in a sense, those changes can be seen Um, even though it can be difficult to interpret a passage like this one, the kind of of comparison that's being made in this passage is really the same kind of comparisons we make even without thought. We use phrases today that that go back to certain kinds of cultural practices and things that we did uh, even 500 years ago. So let let me give you a couple of examples to get started, and then hopefully that helps you connect with with what John is attempting to do here. Uh, It's June. And June is and has always been, ever since I've been living, a, a, a month for weddings. More people get married in the month of June than just about any other month of the year. So your pastors are uh, often busier at this time of the year than they are at other times of uh, getting ready for rehearsal dinners and deciding if we're going to wear a suit or a robe or a tux or what, what all that's going to look like. And, and, and so those, those weddings are there, and, and weddings, weddings are supposed to be romantic, right? It's supposed to be so a summer wedding in June. You all know where that came from. It goes back 500 years when our ancestors, yours and mine, made a decision that the most practical time of the year for a young couple to get married was in June. Do you know why? Because in May was when everybody in the village took their annual bath. <laughs> That's where it comes from. That's where it comes from. And because you're like, whoa, well, then why wouldn't they do it in May? Well, I'm not really sure, but but they compensated for any additional, what do you call it, stink that may have happened between the month of May and the month of June. You know how they did that? The bride was given a bouquet of flowers. That's romantic, isn't it? (laughs) She'll love that. Oh, and speaking of that bath, um, that bath was not like your shower at home that you got into this morning. That bath was a large tub with water that took hours and hours and hours to get hot. And the family, beginning with the men, who back in those days did a lot of the most heavy labor, and therefore they were the dirtiest and the grimiest, typically, and the greasiest, and they would get into that bath. And then all the other men, yeah, it was a patriarchal society, so that's how it goes. And then finally, the women, starting with the adults all the way down, and then the children were last. 
Yes, you're thinking rightly, all in the same water. And so this phrase, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, comes from that kind of thing. Uh, and then they, they would go to, to eat at the reception. And when guests came over and you wanted to make an impression because you were hosting them for a meal, you would hang up a pig, big side of bacon. I mean, that would impress me. And, and you would, you're demonstrating to your family in that moment that, and, and to the village, the rest of the village, that your family's doing okay. All right, we're doing, like some of y'all rednecks, you put your car out in the front yard, you're letting the whole world know how you're doing, right? That's what they were doing. And the way they did it was they, they hung this thing up. And, and so when, when you hear the phrase, bring home the bacon, that's where it came from. And then at the end of that meal, they would go over and they would cut off kind of the fatty end of that pig. And they would hand little pieces of it out to the people that were gathered around the dinner table. And they would sit there for hours chewing the fat. See, you're picking up on that. Like all this kind And then they would drink whiskey with that bacon. But the problem was in the ancient world, a lot of this stuff came out of, they were drinking this stuff out of lead cups. And sometimes maybe the whiskey wasn't produced correctly, or maybe it was fine, but it was mixed in with some of that lead and the chemical reaction to that in your body. And you might just on your way home walking, just pass out on the side of the road. And so someone would find you if, you know, hopefully a neighbor found you, they would take you back to their home and lay your very still body out on their dining room, kitchen table, and they would watch you for hours because there's a possibility it might kill you, but there's also a possibility you might wake up, and that's where the phrase wake came from. So everything we do now off of these figures of speech, these different kinds of things, they, they relate back to things that we've done in the past um, all of that, really. And, and what we're going to learn today is that's also true of the future. The things that we speak of now, the things that we experience now, are a shadow of substantive things that happened in the past. That's also true of the future. There are things that we speak about, even things like marriage and, and, and those kinds of things that, that have really in, in their, they're not the real thing in the end. They're not the substance of what's coming. They're, they're a reflection of everything that's coming. So hopefully that kind of helps you understand where we're headed in, in these last few messages together. These, this is a complicated picture, but, but it's a picture that is based on that idea. All right, two of these reflections today that we're going to look at result in a mixed metaphor, interchangeable descriptions of what John has already referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. And he describes those things in these verses both as a bride and as a city. And if we don't get that, we won't know how to unpack it. If you don't know how to unpack it, man, there's all kinds of hope in here you're never going to access. And I want you to access hope today. That's what I want for you. And so I, I want to unpack all of this, and then I want to come back at the end. Really simple message in terms of the application. I just want to ask you three really critical questions about how your own life and, and the way that you face death even, how does it stack up to what we read here? So let's start with this picture of the bride and the lamb, beginning in verse 9. John says, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, 
And he spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a high wall with 12 gates and the gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the name of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So this starts with a bride, and then it moves very, very quickly to the city. Now, let's talk about the biblical context around both of those ideas. From the very beginning of creation, before the fall even, God designed likely even in view of the fall, an institution called marriage. We see that described for us in its ideal form in Genesis chapter 2, right at the end of the chapter. It says, a man will leave his father and mother and he will hold fast to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now that idealistic model, not five chapters later, gets all jacked up with things like polygamy and adultery and all these other things. But God's ideal from the beginning was one man, one woman for one lifetime. That's, that's God's understanding of, and not, not just God's understanding, that is marriage because it originates with the Lord. And then Paul in his letter to Ephesians quotes that Genesis passage as the foundation for some of the practical instruction that he's giving husbands and wives, for the love that a husband initiates toward the wife, for the submission that a wife willingly gives to her husband. And then he, and then he ends that part of the letter in Ephesians 5.32 saying this, this mystery is profound. And anyone who's been married longer than five years knows it, right? This mystery is profound. That's something my wife and I need to start saying to one another often, I think. This mystery is profound. Right? You just sort of feel that. And then he, but then he says this, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church, which means that a Christian marriage should be different. It should be distinct from the world. And the reason is because it's very existence. If you're a married person, that relationship all by itself points to another deeper mystery. And then we see pop-ups of that mystery all over the Bible, this constant metaphor of Israel and Yahweh, and then later on Christ and his church expressed through the language of a marriage. And, and so in one sense, that allows us to explain to perhaps our, our non-Christian neighbors that, that the parameters that we believe God places on this institution are not there to be a killjoy. They're not there to limit well, you know what? They are there to limit your full expression because your full expression is wicked and so is mine. So yeah, it is, it is limiting, but it's not limiting for our bad. Those parameters are there because of what the institution here on earth is pointing toward. You and I are about to witness in these coming verses through John's testimony, a final ultimate expression of the bride of Christ. That's what all this is pointing to. And in describing that woman, John loops this in with a second vision, a city. And more specifically, it's the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And, and so the bride is a city, and then that city contains a jasper-like glory of God, and it's surrounded, if you haven't noticed already, by twelves. 
The number 12 is mentioned six times in three verses here. It's on the wall. It's on the names of the tribes of Israel. It's on the foundation of those walls that bear the identities of the apostles. Uh, all of us, you know, Ephesians 2.20 tells us that the church itself was built upon the foundation, both of the apostles and the prophets. This place was built, this city, this bride is a place and it has been constructed for Jew and Gentile for all of the redeemed to inhabit and then the angels are guarding it. That's the last thing we're told. Now that's one more example of the Bible beginning the way it ends and ending the way it begins. In Genesis 3:24, when our first parents are kicked out of the garden by their rebellion, there's an angel that's put there and it says he is there to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, that's not just to keep sinful people out. It's a placeholder. That angel is a placeholder for what we're about to read at the other end of the scripture. When that way is again, by the work and the, the coming of Jesus, opened up to people who have believed in him for all people to inhabit. And that perfect world is going to be restored. And we see it as well, just like we see it in, in Genesis 3, guarded by angels in every direction, only this time as we've already read in the early part of verse 20, of chapter 21, there's no more sea. There's no more origin from which any enemy can come. And so this is a picture that assures us of the eternal beauty and permanency of this future that's coming for us. That is great hope. And it's given in comparison to a previous one. Revelation 17, 4. Let me just read that again for review. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurity of her sexual immorality. I just want to remind you what we've already covered. The whore is also very attractive. That, that she is the embodiment of all of that power, all of that cultural allure, all of that, you know, vote for me and I'll give you this or give you that, all of that nonsense that, that John is telling the churches, you keep your head down, you stay faithful to Jesus, don't you move an inch on your obedience to him, you be faithful to him, do not be attracted by the whore. And so when, by the time we get to the bride, we see this great contrast. You're either going to be attached to the whore or you're going to be attached to to the bride. But the good news is you can be a part of the bride. And when you are a part of the bride, you are also a part of something else that we find here in Revelation and over and over again in the Old Testament. And that is the vision of the holy of holies. John begins in verse 15 and he says, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city. And then the next several verses describe that measurement um, and we discover the length, the width, the height, uh, every one of them are 12 stadia, which is roughly about 1,380 miles each way. So that's a pretty big city. And then there's this description, the one that captures me most is the description of the, the thickness of the walls surrounding this place. So it's 144 cubits thick. Now, a cubit is, if you take a grown man from his elbow to the tip of his longest finger, that's, a, that's roughly a cubit. So 144 of those, so you take 144 times roughly 17 inches, that's 204 feet or 68 yards that's the measure, not of a length or the height. That's a length. That's a measure of girth, thickness of those walls. They're impenetrable. And they're attached on them are these, are these precious jewels. And, and they're jewels that we've seen before. 
So let me take you back to Exodus 28 here. You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as the stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. So the jewels in this vision correspond with the ones engraved with the names of the tribes on the breastplate of the high priest. And so what, what's John doing? He's specifically for the Jews in these churches, in his audience, he's hearkening them back, reminding them of the structure and the system of Hebrew worship. And the whole reason is because that structure itself was a shadow. Look at Hebrews chapter 5 or chapter 8, rather, beginning in verse 5, it says of that temple, all of those elements of Hebrew worship, they serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So what John's doing is he's, he's calling them back to that and saying, look, remember the shadow? That shadow has some things to teach you about the new heaven and the new earth. He goes on and he says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so everything about the priest's clothing, everything about the sacrificial system, everything about the temple that's alluded to in these verses is designed to point Israel and then later you and me towards something more ultimate and eternal. And, and John experiences a picture of that re eternal reality right here. And it's a picture of a never-ending existence within the holy of holies, which means that in that new heaven and new earth, with no sea from whence evil can emerge to affect us anymore, with angelic guardians on all sides, God's people will be in his presence in the same way that the high priest was in his presence in the holy of holies. I want you to think about that for a minute. One man, once a year, goes into that little bitty room, and I'm claustrophobic anyway, let alone you put the ark in there and the presence of God, and all my colleagues are tying a rope around my ankle in the event that I've got impurity in my soul and God decides to kill me in that room. They ain't going in there either. They're just going to yank my carcass out. That's the measure of the holiness of God. And the future that's coming, you and I, without fear, without sin, enjoy that future. Because, and because sin is and evil has, has been removed, there's no need for a sacrificial system or any kind of worship like that to deal with the sin, which means that the rest of eternity is pictured as a temple of God's presence. That brings us to verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Symbol, reality. So Adam breaks his relationship with God, and we have lived ever since. We've never known, you and I have never in our lives known a world where we were not separated in some way from that level of fellowship. So God makes a covenant with Israel. He's going to eventually restore everything through the sending of Messiah. That covenant with Israel includes a dwelling place, a tabernacle, later a temple. Uh, the purpose of all of that was designed to teach God's people who he is and how they can have a relationship with them. That practice continues until God himself tabernacles among us in human flesh in the person of the work of Jesus Christ. So no more need for a temple, no more need for a tabernacle, no more need for a, a sacrificial system, no more need for dietary restrictions. Thank God I love bacon, don't you? Right? And, and so all of that comes about as the substance 
oversees and overcomes the shadow. That's what this whole uh, section of text is about. And what we find is that when we get to that moment that you and I haven't experienced yet, Jesus himself will be eternally tent and temple for us. Everywhere you, when you're inside a building, everywhere you look, what do you see? Any building. You see, this is not a trick question, actually. When you're inside a building, everywhere you look, you see the building, right? If you look down, up, wherever. This is a way for us to remember that a day is coming that no matter where we look, there he will be. In his presence forever. Forever. And verse, 20, verse 24 says, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. I, I have to tell you, the first time I read that, the first thing I thought about was Friday nights that I used to spend in my grandmother's house. She passed away suddenly when I was 14 years old. But from the time I was roughly eight up until the point of her passing, I would go over there almost inevitably every Friday night and I would spend the night. Now, my mom didn't have any air conditioning. Yeah, I'm that old. All right. Uh, no air conditioning, um, but she also, it, it was, it, it, so she would open the, the door, all the doors in the house, latch the screens, and the breeze would blow through. I don't know how I survived, honestly. I just don't. I, I've, I've been so pampered all these years with AC, um, but, but it was even in those, those South Carolina summers with 90% humidity. I don't ever remember getting hot. That's not a memory I have. Something else about Mama was she refused to own a gun. And so she didn't have any way to protect herself if somebody were to, to break in. And I would imagine it's not that hard to break in a screen door. But that was my childhood. Anybody else have a childhood like that? And you're like, man, it'd be nice to get back to that, wouldn't it? All these shootings and everything else that we're experiencing, it's like, man, you know, uh, and, and I'm, not, I'm not that old. We're like 30, 40 years ago is what we're talking about. When, when these kinds of things were reality, I say she didn't have a gun. She, she did have a BB gun. For what purpose, I have no idea. I, I don't know. But, but she did have one of those probably behind. But, but I think about that experience, and it, it, we, just, we just felt safe. And then I read this future where every gate stands open and it doesn't even get dark. Your gates... Isaiah 60 says, shall be open continually day and night, and they shall not be shut. No need for security, alarms, armed guards, guns, nothing like that in this future. That people may bring you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. And that's true of every nation. Back in John chapter, or, or Revelation chapter 6, John showed us a red horse. You remember that picture? Right? Everything we're looking at now kind of harkens back to, to some of those earlier pictures. The red horse is a message. There's going to be cycles of war and violence that will always be present in this world. There has never been a time in the last 2,000 years where there wasn't some kind of regional, if not global, conflict on this planet. And, and John's vision tells us a day is coming when we can look among every ethnic group, every language group, every culture in the world, and we will not find conflict anywhere. And here's the reason for it. Verse 27, nothing unclean will, never, will ever enter it. 
See, all this is caused by sin. Every bit of it. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember in 21 verse 5, the Lord says, I'm making all things new. Well, just a few verses later now here, we're looking with so much more clarity. We see why all these horrible judgments that we read about were necessary. It's because God loves us and God wants good for us. And God wants to give us this grand vision of the end. God wants you, me, all of us to be his bride. And that cannot be accomplished without a complete purge of sin and evil in the world. And sin and evil isn't just out there. It's right here. Right here. No impurity enters his kingdom. All right? This is the danger of reading Revelation in such a way that that your temptation is to see all the problems out there. It's some other government or somebody with a different ideology or a different religion. or anything. No, it's here, right here. Starts in Joel's heart. I can't do a whole heck of a lot about Russia anyway. I'm a peon. But I'm going to tell you what I can do. I can run to Jesus. I can repent. I can pray. I can make things right with my neighbor. I can do the things that I've been empowered to do. And I can do it all in the power of the Holy Spirit until ultimately he makes me pure. And the result of that is going to be this glorious vision. This new city that is called a bride, that's our destination. And here's the better news. It's not somewhere else. I don't have to get in a car and travel. Like when I was a kid, and we would get in the car and go. And I never understood why my dad got so angry with me when I would repeatedly ask how much further until I had children. And I just get, you know. We were in the van not long ago, and somebody was like, I don't even remember who it was. I, I shouldn't say anyway. I don't want to embarrass him or her. How much further? I have to pee. And your pastor said, well, you're going to have to hold it. And his wife went, that worked. Right? You just get this whole, right? None of us really like a long, laborious trip. Even if you're not like me and you're one of those crazy people who for some reason is delusional enough to enjoy the trip. Right? Yeah, yeah. You got a limit, don't you? Eventually, you're at, you, you don't have to go anywhere for this. You're like, where's this, where's this taking place? Look at your feet right there. And, and in every other square inch on the planet, it's right here. Uh, the late George Eldon Ladd used to say that the Bible always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in a heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. This planet, yes, with all of its violence and bloodshed and injustice, will be made new. But to share in this future that's just been described for us, you've got to want it. You've got to want it. And before you go... Who wouldn't want that? Well, that's a good question, but actually, as it turns out, a lot of people don't want that. And the way you find out whether you really want this is by asking yourself some rather introspective questions. So let me ask you three of them here. Number one, do you long exclusively for the presence of God? Because that's what's described here. 
Do you long for that? When, when Jesus tells us in the Gospels, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. When Jesus tells us in the Gospels, no one who does not hate his father and mother can be my disciple. When Jesus tells us in the Gospels, you had better count the cost before you follow me. When Paul testifies to the Philippians, having been the beneficiary of that message, he says, all the stuff that I counted on before, the stuff I valued before, I counted as skibola. Yep, preacher just cussed in church, but I did it in Greek, so it's okay, right? It means dung, crap. That's what it means. Well, it means something a little stronger than that, actually. But, you know, we are where we are. You get the picture, right? He's like, I, all of that is garbage to me. All right, when we see all of that in the text, those are the dispositions of people who will inherit the kingdom. Salvation doesn't come because you're afraid of hell. It doesn't come because you're afraid of judgment. It doesn't become because you just, I want to make sure that I, I avoid all the bad stuff that's coming in the future. Salvation comes when God so radically changes your heart that you don't want anything else but him. You go, I want this. And if I got to give up everything else for it, so be it. That's, that's the whole point of the, the parable of the pearl of great price. Remember that man found a, found a great treasure, found a great pearl, what did he do? He went and he sold everything he had, and he comes back because this is of a higher value to him. So when we say, do you long exclusively for this, that is the measure, right? So, so when, the, when the total depth of your faith is an occasional Facebook meme that mentions Jesus, if I were to really get you to be honest with me and ask you about the time that you spend communing with the Lord versus the time you spend doing any number of other things. When I ask about how God's word is employed in your home or whether it just kind of sits on the shelf all week, when, when coming together with God's family is an absolute last resort after every other priority has been crossed off the list, I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I Really, it just, I, I had a couple come in here, I don't know, three, four years ago. It was before COVID, so they, like, they, they didn't even blame the virus. They were just completely honest. It, it, was a, it was a couple that I met at a small group that they also just sort of happened to attend right after I first got here. And they were like, oh, we spend every single weekend here, here, here. And they named all of this stuff. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'll never see you. And, and then they came in the room, and this, this is the last time I saw them, actually. I was standing in the upper concourse. I was greeting some of the folks checking in, our kids. And, and this couple walks in, and I thought, I think I remember you, but I don't. And the guy walked up to me. You know what he said? I am quoting him verbatim. You know, we didn't have anything else to do today, so we came. <laughs> and I thought, really? Like, I don't, what do you want me to do with that? What do you want me to, I, I'm not angry, my heart breaks for you. If you don't want to be around these people, if you don't long every seven days to be around the people of God, why in the devil would you want to go to heaven where all these people are going to be? I'm just asking a really simple question, right? Do you really want this? If God is only there for you when you need Jesus to take the wheel, all due deference to Carrie Underwood. But there's no growing relationship. 
This destination is for people that want it. They want it. Listen, there are people who spend more time preparing to go to Disney than preparing to go to heaven. And I will admit to you my biases. I hate Disney. I do. It's hot. It costs too much. There is no sin. You, you make your plans. You do what you do. You go down there. You take the pictures. Even if it means your face feels like it's melting off in the middle of July. You, you go on to Disney. I'm not judging you for going to Disney, but I have sense like, where, where's the priorities here? I got to get ready. Do you want this? A way to answer that question is to answer a second one. Are you really, I'm like, like, does your heart almost jump out of your chest when you read passages like this? Are you excited about a redeemed earth? To the extent that you don't care what you have to lose in order to get there. That's hard. That's hard for me. I'll admit it. Best example I can actually think of from that is, is when the Lord brought our daughter, Gracie, into our family. We were counseled by other adoptive families. We were counseled by social workers and warned that there will be a period of mourning when you bring her home. Okay. Because even though she's only 18 months old, there are things in her life that will never be part of her life ever again. She's, they're going to be taken away from her. Now, to the average American, that's like, so? What do you mean, things? She's got to share a bed with somebody else. She eats congee, three meals a day, malnourished. She's coming into a home where she's going to bear my name and my provision and my protection. And God willing, there will never be a moment ever again where she'll go to the fridge or the cabinet and not find what she needs. There'll never be a moment where she will be without shelter or without clothing. Not as long as her daddy's alive. I can tell you that. It's like, this is, a, this is so much better. Yeah, well, that, she don't know that. Right? The only thing she knows is that everything she's known is gone. That's where we are right now. We read about this, but we've never experienced it. The only experiences we've had are of the shadow that we experience in this life. And maybe it's a little normal for us to mourn that it won't always be this way. And then there's another shooting. Then there's another riot. Then there's another tragedy that affects even a member of our family. And we're reminded we better not long for anything down here. This place is broken. A lot of good stuff, a lot of pleasure. We should enjoy it. We should do it to the glory of God. It's broken, irreparably broken until it is purged of the evil that is at the root of all of the brokenness and restored fully as God promises us it will be. But in order for that to happen, we got to let go of everything else. We live in the mere shadow of the substance that's coming. And when that substance comes, all the shadows disappear. All of them. Talked about this last week. Marriage, a good gift from God. Precious. Precious. I, it is indescribable how grateful I am to God for my wife. It's essential for human flourishing. It's essential. I'm talking about the one man, one woman, the way Scripture describes it. Absolutely essential if civilization is going to continue. But it's also a shadow. 
It's a shadow. Let's, let's keep marriage. Let's, let's esteem it. Let's not idolize it. Let's keep it in its place because it will not exist in the new world. Why do you need it? Why do you need it? When, when everything we're going to have in that existence is the relationship that our marriages were intended to point us toward. What on earth need will my wife have for Joel in the New Jerusalem when she's got Jesus who has always and will always love her in ways her husband is incapable of? The better thing is coming. That's the point. The better thing is coming. This entire section is characterized by the glory of God. And sometimes it's a little difficult to, to define that. What, is it, what does it mean? What is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is wherever and whenever and under whatever circumstances God may manifest himself, that place is filled with the weight of his being. That's glory. The weight of his purity and character. This city that's just been described for us glows eternally with the unspeakable glory of God, which means that everything in it is filled with the glory of God, which means that everything there will make everything we currently have now, including those things that are most precious to us, seem like a shadow because that's what it is. That's all this life is. So how much do you cling to what is? Do you anticipate the substance that's coming more than the shadow that you're currently experiencing? Here's the final question. Will you exchange this life for the next and better one? All right. how, how you look at death right now informs whether you will die well. Did you know that? You know you're, you're all going to die, right? I just hope that's not news to anybody. You want to prepare for that moment just like you're preparing for tomorrow morning, just like you're preparing for what you may do next year. They are a reflection, whether you realize it or not, of your view of the new Jerusalem and the ultimate bride of Christ, the bride and the city. How you view those things determines whether or not you die well. Because you got to walk a little bit of a balancing act here. Because it, it, it's one thing to, to be cavalier about death. You've met people like that, right? I, I met a couple in a, in a church I did an interim, was doing an interim pastorate at about 10 years ago, and they, they tragically lost their adult son, 21, 22 years old, in a car accident. And I just walk up to hug the dad, and he literally pushed me away, big smile on his face. He's dancing with Jesus. We got no reason to be. And I'm like, you have lost your mind. It took about a month before all that fake crap wore off and he crashed. That's not faith. That's being cavalier about death. Death is described in Scripture as an enemy. You don't rejoice over that. You can be comforted by the fact that that loved one is in heaven. Absolutely, there's comfort in that grief. But all this cavalier, oh, it's just fine. It, it'll be fine. No, it won't. It's probably going to hurt. It will likely involve some pain, and it is definitely, when my time comes and your time comes, it is going to cost you everything you've ever had in this life. That moment's coming. 
So we need to see death realistically. Can I sing with Paul in, in his letter to Corinthians, death, where is your sting, grave, where is your victory? Yeah, I can absolutely sing that. But if I've got a realistic picture of what I'm talking about, I'm going to do it with a lump in my throat. So it's one thing to be cavalier. Don't be cavalier about death. It, but it's another thing to allow that admittedly somber reality to steal every ounce of joy in your life. I have known people like that. Paul said it's the moment when the, when the, the mortal puts on immortality. But there's some people, I've seen them like, they don't even, they're not even sick yet. They're just 75. You met people like that before? You're like, oh, well, my day's coming. They say, that's all I can talk about is the day they die. And then they tear up, and then there's drama. And they're like, you, are you cool? Like, is there a cancer diagnosis that's come? Is there a, yeah, yeah, well, no, no, but you know, I got a lot more years behind me than I got, a, I got ahead of me. And I, well, well, I'm 50. So do I. How many people do you know that are 100? I can't let that haunt me. Don't let it steal your joy. You will not die in a way that honors the Lord. And you are commanded as a follower of Jesus to die in a way that honors the Lord, just as you're commanded to live in a way that honors the Lord. That's a challenge, I think, that, that rises out of this. And so the challenge is to live. C.S. Lewis speaks about this in Mere Christianity. Not, not just bios, which is the life you inherit from your biological parents. My heart's beating, my, you know, it's not, it's not bios that he's talking about here. It's Zoe. That's what he's talking about here. And every little girl named Zoe just went, whoop, is he talking about me? Talking about your name. You know what it means? It means a life that does not run down and can never run down. That's what it means. That's the life that God offers us. Look at, look at the first two verses of chapter 22. Give you a little preview of where we're going next week. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. When you see death in this way, you view the end of all things as you know them in this way. You actually look forward to it. You look forward to it. And you glorify God in the way you die just as he calls you to live for his glory. That's John's message here, that everything you and I know is going to pass away. So hold it loosely. Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth, the body still, his kingdom is forever. Hold everything in this life loosely, but as long as it's in your hands, leverage every ounce of it for the greater glory of God. This is how you live to his glory. This is how you die to his glory. And await that future that's coming. Again, Scripture Lad tells us places men and women on a redeemed earth right here. That there's something about heaven that's not up there. There's something about this truth of the future God has for us that's very earthy. And what awaits us is right here. But it's far better than anything we've ever experienced. It's far more glorious than anything we've experienced. And because it's on the earth, it's a lot closer 
than we could possibly fathom. Do you want it? What are you willing to give up for it? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, for pictures like this, complicated as they may be sometimes, of the future that you've given us, a future of us living in a city, living in a city as a bride that's been adorned for her husband in a constant, eternal, perfect, immeasurably joyful, glorious relationship in your presence forever and ever. And Father, we confess this morning that the only way to get there is through a bloody cross and an empty tomb. And so I ask you this morning to convict hearts and minds. If there's someone here today that has not put their faith and their trust in you, Lord, may your spirit draw them. Make them ready for this life that is to come. Give them the joy that only you can give in their life. Lord, for those who are following you, we prayed for known tragedy today, for known suffering, for known difficulty. So much going on in the hearts and the minds of people that I'm looking at and people even on the other side of the camera that I'm not looking at right now that, that we don't know about. And Lord, they're not quite sure how to deal with it. May this future motivate them to leverage what you have left in their hands for your glory until they see you face to face. And Lord, may they leave this meeting encouraged today because of that future. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.